Welcome to Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. On this podcast, we journey through the devastating experience of the death of a child. Grief is seldom discussed openly in our culture, and the death of a child makes people feel even more uncomfortable. We approach the topic openly and honestly, speaking to people who have lost loved ones and experts who help care for them. Whether you are a parent experiencing loss or someone who wants to support another going through this tragedy, this podcast strives to offer hope and help. Welcome to episode 178 of Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. I'm Marcy Larson, Andy's mom. Today, I have the privilege to speak with Patty, Nick's mom. Now, Patty was recommended to me by a listener. So again, if you know someone that you think would be a great guest, please email me at marcy at because the listener was right. Patty was a great guest. She is super inspiring. What first drew me to her was reading the obituary that she wrote about her wonderful son, Nick. So I am going to have her read that during the interview. And I am excited for you to learn more about Nick, Patty's love for Nick, and how Nick really has been able to live on after his death uh, through just Patty's words and her love and encouragement to other people. Thank you so much, Patty, for agreeing to come on the Always Andy's Mom podcast today and talk about your son, Nick. Well, thank you, Marcy. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to talking to you. I heard about you because my friend Sheila sent this beautiful, beautiful obituary that you had actually written about your son that we will definitely get into. But it really just intrigued me. And I knew that I wanted to meet you and talk to you and that you would have so much to offer people. So thank you for coming on today. You're welcome. I hope I have something to offer somebody. (laughs) I have no doubt that you do. No doubt that you do. Just from reading that one thing that you wrote, it was it's just precious. So why don't you start out just by talking about Nick and telling us all about him? Oh, well, Nick, he was born in 1986. He was the oldest of three. Mm-hmm. He was great. He was a loving, kind of shy, very much an old soul young kid growing up. He was attached to my hip. He wanted to be with his mom all the time. I had him in daycare. And even if I were sick, I would keep him home with me from daycare just because he just wanted to be with his mom. And really, Mm -hmm. that's how it's been for like 33 years of his life. We were really close. He was an awesome kid. He was incredibly intelligent. He was a good athlete. He never got into any trouble. I would have parents tell me that they wish they had a Nick, you know, the teachers loved him. And this is how it was all through grammar school and high school coaches loved him. He did have some struggles with friends in middle school, Mm -hmm. fifth grade, probably in middle school, he was bullied somewhat. And I think he always had this like, small group of friends and they were kind of the, you know, the athletes. And, and then when he goes to middle school, there's a lot more kids and, you know, Nick wasn't a big kid. And, and I think because he was really intelligent, he got picked on 
probably a lot. And, you know, I go back to that because I always thought, oh, I wonder if that had something to do with with the way he felt about himself. But really, looking back now, I just think he came into this world, you know, this way with Mm -hmm. the disease of addiction, because he just was not somebody that ever, you know, got into trouble or ever. Like I said, he was just a just a beautiful, gifted, loving son, brother, grandson. He really, truly was, you know, and he was the first grand grandson in my family, and I'm one of six kids, and so he was, you know, just doted on, and just he was just the wow. most loving, loving, loving kid, super sensitive, you know, but just yeah, just a great kid, and and a good and a good friend. He was a very good friend. As a matter of fact, when he was in middle school, my girlfriend, the kids. I think it was like sixth grade and the kids had to write a paper on who they admire the most in their life. And my girlfriend called me and said how her son, who his name was Casey, wrote about Nick, his friend, and how much he admired his friend Nick. And she was laughing and saying, and Nick wrote about me, his mom. (laughs) And my girlfriend was laughing, saying, I can't believe he picks Nick over his mom, (laughs) but it's like, I was just so shocked too. I was like, wow, that's, that's really, that's saying a lot, isn't it? Pretty cool that a, you know, 12 year old is writing this whole paper on my son and how much he admires him. And so, yeah, he was, you know, he was just great. He was, you know, an honor roll, took AP classes. You know, um, I remember his history teacher in high school telling me how Nick kept him on his toes because Nick would ask questions that the teacher would struggle answering. Yeah. That was just who he was. You know, he was very protective of his younger siblings. And I was going to ask about him as a big brother. Yeah. Because how many kids do you have then? He has a brother that's three years younger. And then my youngest, he has a sister who is like eight years younger than he was. Oh, okay. So yeah. big age gap in those two, for sure. Yeah. Between the oldest and the youngest. Yeah. So, and they were, you know, very close and, and that's hard, especially he and his brother were super close and yeah, yeah, it was hard when we knew how sick he was and do you want to talk about that now about when kind of his struggles with addiction started? I know they probably started his senior year in high school. And I know this after reading one of his journals when he was in a rehab that he talks about he took ecstasy when he was a junior in high school and he was at a party and he was wow. just amazed on how that made him feel. That it just, he said that it was that one experience that he just, you know, knew that this is, he needed this to, I think, kind of feel like he could fit in and feel normal and be happy. So that was his, probably his first experience. You know, it's kind of funny because once we found out, and this was when he was in college, my sister asked him and she he she was very close with nick you know i just it's so hard for me to understand because you never drank you know you never drank alcohol and he said i never liked it i never liked the taste you know so he wasn't looking for um you know really that fix to get high he was just looking to feel good yeah and so 
Then it started with the using the prescription drugs, okay, Oxycontin, and that's really what took him down was, I don't know if he started that in high school. I know he was using it in college. And I think it was when he was in college, he called and said, and his behavior had changed too. his senior year in high school. I, I know he didn't, he wasn't as much as a homebody. He, he was going out a lot and it's just his behavior change. He didn't seem to be focusing as much on school and I just attribute it to, well, it's his last year of high school and, you know, he wants to yeah. be with his friends. And so he goes off to college and it was his second year of college where he called me and he said that he he really wanted to come home, that there was, you know, he couldn't focus there at school and he wanted to come home and go to school. And with Nick, I never had to check his, get on his portal when he was in high school or when he was in college, because he was just always an A student. He wasn't yeah. one of those kids you need to ever had to check his grades. So when he called and told me he wanted to come home, you know, and go to a different school, I thought, well, okay, you know, there's schools, you know, here that you can transfer to. And he said, well, no, I don't. I think I just want to go to a junior college. And so that point was when I was kind of like something's up and I got onto his portal and I really found that his freshman year, I think he maybe passed two classes. His sophomore year was just basically a waste of time. So he came home and I talked to him, what's going on? And he said, you know, nothing. He was just depressed at school. And I can't remember how long after, but his brother had a baseball game Um, He was, his brother was a senior in high school and it was a big game. And so we were going, so Nick and I were going together to watch his brother play. It was in the car that he told me that he was addicted to Oxycontin. And of course, I'm like, didn't at the time know what it was. And I'm like, what, you know, what do you mean? How did this happen? And he kept telling me not to worry about it, that he already contacted a doctor who could, could help him detox from it and had he been getting prescriptions for this then or? Yeah, that's yeah. a whole nother, that's a whole nother um, chapter of his story. He was buying it from friends, I know. Yeah. But he also, there was a dirty doctor that lived probably 20 miles away. And she was a, because I would see these prescriptions and it had her name on it. And mm-hmm. so I found him. And so... She was a known, apparently dirty doctor. She was a pain management doctor. And, oh, it just bothered me so much because she lived in the same town I lived in. And I was like, you know, she's dealing drugs. Her kids were in our schools. She's dealing drugs, you know, Mm -hmm. to our children. And, you know, this is a doctor. And so anyway, I had and Nick would go in saying, oh, I have back pain or whatever. And that's how. That's what I was going to say. So he, he would. Oh, yeah. But he, he never had, had an exam. Nothing. Okay. So a friend of our family's worked for a TV station in the Bay Area. She, this is, you know, she was big on these kind of stories. And there was another another young boy who actually overdosed and her brother happened to be a best friend of ours. And 
the boy was a patient. He's an orthodontist and the boy was a patient and, you know, again, came home from college and he was super bright, great, great kid, had everything going for him. Same story, different kid. I'm telling her that there's this doctor, you know, that is basically dealing to these kids out of her office. And so I actually filed with the California State Licensing Board mm-hmm. against her. And, oh, my gosh, I got a report that's probably 300 pages long. And oh, really? so after their investigation, they did all this. Um, other people came out saying, you know, yeah, she was giving them pills as well. So anyway, the news person, our friend, went to her office and of course they wouldn't let the cameras in, but she went in there and she said that the gal, there was a ton of young, young people in there and the gal behind the counter, the receptionist had like a stack of cash and it was all cash, you know, cash basis. It was all, and she just, and she said people kind of got up and snuck out of the room once they saw her walk in. And so she did a story on it on channel seven, which was really cool. She just referred, you know, she wanted to use my name and she did the story about Nick and she did the story about this other boy who died. And I had two other kids in the school district. And so I didn't want her to use my name right, or Nick's name because Nick was still alive, you know? So, Mm -hmm. but her story was great. And, um, you know, it just brought a lot more people forward. And of course, I was like a crazy mom. There were years where, you know, I mean, when I found this out, I called her office and I'm screaming and yelling and yeah, telling her, you know, I know what she's doing. And of course, she's saying, I can't give you any information because of the HIPAA laws. And yeah. I'm like, I'm not looking for any information because I know everything. I'm just calling to tell you that I'm going to file don't give my son any more drugs. <laughs> yeah. And I, and her actually license got ended up getting suspended. Yeah. Well, that's good. Oh yeah. But then it was, it's just so many people I would started going to Al-Anon and there was a gal that I met who was with a few other gals that um, were forming a group of moms and outside of Al-Anon and just trying to bring attention to it because this was a community that, you know, of course you don't have kids using drugs in this community and you don't, and yeah, they were, and you know, a lot of them and just trying to bring, so we would go into the schools and talk. And during this time, Nick was, he was in several, I think five different rehabs. Yeah. Because, so he told you that day that he met, this doctor that was going to help him and get things under control. And so, so that was kind of his first little stint into rehab. Yeah. The the doctor had suggested he go to this 30 day and I went with him. I made, you know, I said, I'm going with you. I, you know, I want to see this doctor. And actually he actually detoxed. He was, everybody knows him. He is big on getting kids off this. So Nick went to a 30 day and then, you know, he came out of it and it was just, he relapsed. The sad thing is, is that, you know, and he was always, he didn't use drugs with anybody. He was using them on his own yeah, just to feel normal. And so it just, it got worse. It turned into, you know, heroin's cheaper. Mm-hmm. It's amazing that he never overdosed on fentanyl. He never got fentanyl in it, which is just one doctor that he saw that he talked to was, you know, 
telling him that he's how lucky he is because tens of thousands of kids are dying of fentanyl overdoses. Yeah. And I know that scared Nick. And of course, this was years ago, but yeah, it just got, you know, he'd get better and then he'd relapse again. And it was just ongoing and it was horrible. My, my other son was in college at the time. My daughter was in middle school. And so she'd had to live it. Yeah. It just ripped the family apart. You know, it's funny the way you talk about that's because, you know, one, I had one patient that I saw now many years ago. She was a middle schooler and she had a pretty regular marijuana use, but she had done fentanyl two or three times. And I remember her, so her mom brought her in to try to have this talk with me. And and I, I did a, a FMLA, a Family Medical Leave Act form for mom because they decided they were just, they could never leave her alone. So that's what they were going to do is not leave her alone. But I remember the girl saying to me, I know it's terrible for me. I know it could kill me. But if it was in the room right now, I would do it. And I didn't realize, I think, until I heard this middle school age girl say that to me, how powerful that addiction was. This is a girl who had done it, I think, twice, actually, now that I think about it, and wouldn't have hesitated in a heartbeat to do it again because it was such an amazing feeling for her that she would just do that. And even though she knew, she knew. She knew how dangerous it was. She knew all of that. But she also knew that she couldn't not if it had mm-hmm. been in the room with her. I mean, it just, it scared me in a way because my kids were all quite little at that point. And it was just really, really frightening. And I thought I just hadn't realized that. Even as a doctor, I hadn't sure. realized how powerful that can be when you just have you just had one experience and that's what she said it changed it for her one experience of that's how that's what nick said yeah the same thing it was that one time and he knew that that he needed that yeah he even went before he went to rehab i think this was the second rehab we basically told him you know we found the drugs in his room and we said you know you have two choices you can leave right now or you can get on a plane this was like on a thursday on Saturday and go to this rehab in Arizona. And he just begged me, can I just use until Saturday until I'll go to the rehab, but can I use until I go? I mean, and that's how powerful it is. It was like, yeah, so powerful. Until he had somebody helping him get off it, he needed to mm-hmm. keep using. And it's just sad because they do go to rehab, but it's just, and that's the other thing. There's so many that call themselves dual diagnosis. And I haven't found one that's a true dual diagnosis, but, you know, with Nick, you know, we found out later that, and I don't know if this was because of the drugs or before the drugs started, but he did have some mental health issues Mm -hmm. that I think started when kind of around when he started using. Yeah. I think it is hard to know what comes first in some ways, because I think it really is mental health struggles make you ending end up wanting to sort of self-medicate a little bit. Right. And that self-medication can turn into addiction. I, I see that a lot with, with marijuana use with kids that have a lot of anxiety. Like you're feeling really anxious and then the marijuana will help kind of make you feel in the moment less anxious. But then, you know, it just leads on to 
more and more and more. So, but then I think the other can happen too, that you can have this drug experience and then have that lead to mental health struggles. Right, right, exactly. And it's just hard. And when, when you're, you know, trying to figure out, is it the drugs or is it something else? You know, they really have to be off of the drugs for a while Mm -hmm. to get to a place where you could kind of, which is what happened the last year of his life. It was kind of like, okay, there's something going on. Right. So that last year was a little bit different. It was a little bit different. He, again, I'm trying to think the longest he was sober, I don't even know. I don't even know. Maybe a year, but the last year of his life, he he ended up in three different psychiatric hospitals. And the last one, when he came home um, and he knew he would, and even years earlier, he had kind of said, mom, do you think, you know, I'm like bipolar or do you think? And I was like, oh, I don't, I don't think so, Nick. I, you know, and, but he, I think he knew that there was he was afraid to say that he knew that there was something Mm -hmm. wrong with him because the stigma, you know, you have there too, but the last year, and you know what, Marcy, through all of this, he was still kind of, he wasn't, he wasn't aggressive. He wasn't, he was still kind of pretty much soft-spoken Nick. And yeah. And there were times where, you know, he would say things that I'm like, that's not my son, but he wasn't at all violent. But yeah, he, I found an addiction specialist that we were seeing that he was going to and he, and they were trying to basically, and he did get diagnosed bipolar. And I think also he was probably schizophrenic Mm -hmm. just because of some of the things he would do that I thought was the drugs. And that I have a lot of guilt from because I asked him, he was homeless for five months in Napa. And because he, you know, he couldn't live at home. You know, I can't have you, you have a, have you using drugs in our house? It's just, you know, you live here, you're drug free or you're, and I was really involved in Al-Anon and honestly, Al-Anon's, I can't believe I'm alive. Al-Anon probably saved my life. He, so he was homeless. And when he came home and that's a whole separate story, but we brought him home and just like, we didn't really say anything then, but this last year when he was doing well, I asked him, I said, Nick, how are you using drugs when you were in Napa? You had no money. And he said, mom, I wasn't, I wasn't using drugs. And I went to see him a couple of times when he was in Napa and he was, his behavior was very, very odd. So I just assumed that, you know, somehow he was getting drugs, but he wasn't. And that just, it's like, oh my God, I left my son homeless and he was, you know, mentally ill. It just breaks your mama's heart. But, you know, we've had so many times on the podcast that you do the best that you can with what you knew at the time. And what you knew at the time was that if you had had him home, he would have been using Oh, 100%. Every time he was at home, he started using. And he knew that too. Yeah. Right? He would have known that. So even though he was, you know, maybe when he was homeless, he was clean, he would have still known that like, okay, I'm clean. I guess I could go home. But if I go home, I won't be clean. So I guess I can't go home. Right? Right. Exactly. 
you know, he knew he, he, yeah, he couldn't use that home. And um, I mean, he was couch surfing for years and besides being homeless and, you know, it was almost like I would tell him, Nick, the more I try and help you, the worse you get, like the more I try and, you know, it's like, you have to help yourself. And he, he was involved in AA and, you know, but I was always the first phone call always. And that's what, you know, that was really, really hard. And I would just tell him, I'm not supposed to be your first phone call. You know who to call. It's not me. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, he had all the tools and he had a great AA support group, especially the last year where he really got involved. And that was hard because that was during COVID. So he lost his community. It was all done online. That's just devastating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really, it really was. Because when you don't have that support system that you're starting to rely on, and that's the only thing kind of keeping you afloat is that support system. It is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it was tough for him. And it's for them, they they have to, it's the in-person thing that's so big for them. And, yeah. you know, doing it on Zoom just really wasn't the same. I mean, he did, he'd go into his room and do it on Zoom but not like he would, he was at different meetings every day and really made some friends. And, mm-hmm. and I think just getting out of the house can be so beneficial too. just getting oh, yeah. your body moving, you know? Yeah, mm-hmm. totally, totally. So yeah, he, he just, um, he tripped a couple times during the years. And the last time he did, he was actually living with my sister and um, for the last year of his life. And he was working and, you know, he seemed to be doing okay. And I found I had a, his, I had given him a cell phone and I was able to see, you know, where he was. Mm-hmm. And which I don't know if that was really good of me to do, but I just, he was living with my sister and I didn't want my sister being taken advantage of or. Yeah. 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 You were protecting her too. Know, mm-hmm. Manipulated or. So he was, he, you know, I found out that he did go get a very small amount and he came, well, for, he lied a lot about it and then um, told me the truth and, and it was the night it was mother's day and so it was that next mother's day was on sunday so it was monday night i told my sister i'm gonna have you know sit down with him and she and i were going to talk to him his dad and i were no longer together and we talked to him and i basically told him that you know you you need you can't live here anymore nick you need to really talk to your friends at AA and find a place Mm -hmm. to live or rent a room or whatever. And, you know, I can't do this anymore with you, you know, it's 13 years. So we had, it wasn't a horrible, you know, conversation. It was very calm and just telling him that the next day he had to find a place to live. So he was, you know, saying, please, mom, don't do this. And, so for me, it's always been best to just for over the year, like I just have to get step away. Yeah. Because otherwise, you know, I just get dragged into the whole begging and 
Yeah. Well, you need to protect your mama's heart a little bit, right? I do, you know, and I have other children that basically lost me for 13 years. It was almost as though I tell people I was addicted to his addiction. You know, that's what it felt like. So I just told him no and I go home and he was blowing up my phone that night, calling constantly, texting me, please, mom. I mean, I can't even look at the texts anymore because they're so heartbreaking. You know, he's like, you're the only one who ever had any hope for me. And you know, it was just, you know, but I just am like, I can't, I can't respond. I can't pick up the phone because I'm going to get dragged into this. And so the next morning I go to work. And I'm talking to a friend of mine who actually we've become best friends. And she was blessed with two addicts in her family, two of her sons. They're currently both in recovery. But and I met her through Al-Anon and she's been a huge support of mine. And so her son has been like sober for four years. And she's like, well, let me call Jake and, you know, see if, you know, Nick can go where he's at. And so I'm like, oh, this is great. And I was you know, feeling good about it. And I was going to go talk to Nick later that day and say, Hey, I think I have a place where you can go. And I literally had almost just hung up with my friend and my sister called and said, do you know where Nick is? His car is here and his phone is in his bedroom and work keeps calling him because he's not at work. And I'm like, well, is his bike there? And she said, yes. And And she was like, you know, what, where would he have gone? And so I got a little nervous when she said his phone was there. So I said, well, I'm leaving work. I'm going to go drive around. So I'm driving around and I was probably driving around for like 20 minutes. And my sister called me just crying and screaming in the phone and found him in her bedroom. And that's where he shot himself and took his own life. And I was probably a block away from her house and, you know, ran over there. And of course, they didn't want me to go in the bedroom. And I'm like, no, it's my son. You're not going to keep me from being with my son. And yeah, and yeah, he was he was gone. And it was just it that was hard. But I it was also just the guilt like the night before I didn't. Yeah, yeah pick up the phone or I didn't like you go back thinking if I had only talked to him you second guess those things but yeah you second guess a lot but again it's that thing that you have to just keep almost saying to yourself over and over and over with the information I had at the time I made the best decision I knew and you were being a good mom right yeah a good mom that night before but it is hard when you have those kind of thoughts that sneak in for sure. Yeah. Just devastating. And it is, you know, the only, I don't know, I just kept thinking that helped me through was the fact of had I been there, this could have been his life, his life struggle, the mental illness and the addiction. And, you know, maybe, maybe this was his time. Yeah. Whatever his higher power said, you've been through enough. And yeah. Yeah. So that, you know, cause I couldn't imagine him dealing with that kind of life he was dealing with, you know, for years. Yeah. 
Well, I want to talk now about the obituary that you wrote for him. I don't know if you, you don't, do you happen to have it handy that you could read it? I do. Yeah, because I really think it was beautiful. And I, and I want you to talk a little bit first about kind of the thought process beforehand, because you talked to me about that, about, you know, just trying to decide what, whether to write that and what to write. And then I do want you to read it because I just think it's so beautiful and powerful. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I yeah, I think what got me to write it was, again, I was at a place where I just want to speak out and I want to help those young people in particular that are struggling to know that it's okay to talk about it. Yeah. And to be honest, and if you're, and if you're struggling, you know, let somebody know and then for families and friends to know that, you know, this, this, this wasn't their choice, you know, so yeah, reach out to them and be compassionate and understand how sick they are. And so that's what, and I, and I had been, like I said, involved in, well, in Al-Anon, but then in just talking with people, with moms who had kids struggling. So, you know, I was just involved with different support groups and everything. So I was kind of entrenched in it. And I just felt like, you know, I can't, I can't let him die in vain. Like I want, I want, this is like his gift. And honestly, I can't even tell you the number of strangers that reached out to me and cards that I got and phone calls and people finding me, looking me up through Facebook. Yeah. It was just, I have to even share with you really quick. I have it hanging on my wall, but when Nick first died, it was just, like I said, the number of people who reached out to me that I didn't even know was unreal. Even the gal at the newspaper who did the obituary, mm-hmm. she had a daughter who was struggling and she, you know, I think I was on the phone one day with her for an hour, just wow, talking about it. But just this last September, a young man reached out to me through Facebook and this is now two years later. And he sends me this message and it says, dear Patty, my name is Billy. I'm 44 and from Danville, and I just wanted you and your family to know that I've suffered with substance abuse. I'm now almost two years sober. My father and mother worked with me for years with this disease. My father, in an attempt to help me recover, sent me your son's obit. I was not well, but I kept it on my fridge and looked at it often. The words you used and the love for your son helped me to survive. I still have Nick's obit next to my coffee machine and I say hello to him every morning. I wanted to thank you for your words and love for your and love for your son may have kept me alive. I know what I must do now that I have achieved recovery. He is in my memory forever. Thank you. Oh, that's beautiful. It was, and it was such a rotten day I was having. And then I get that and I have since met him and he was really said he didn't know if he should send me that or not because he didn't know how I would take it. And I said, you don't know how perfect it was to receive. I mean, that just brought me so much joy. He calls Nick his sobriety angel. Well, why don't you read that obituary? You have to read it now to us. Okay. (laughs) It says, Nick Renetti, age 33, died 
tragically on May 12, 2020, taking his life following a long, brave battle with addiction. He is survived by his mother, Patty Ward Renetti, father Rick Renetti, brother Casey, and sister Jamie Renetti. He was preceded in death by grandparents Joseph, Joseph and Susan Ward and grandfather Stephen Renetti, Uncle Mike, and Uncle John Moore. Nick grew up in Pleasanton, California, graduating from Foothills High School in 2005. He participated in high school athletics and lettered in academics. Nick attended Chico State, planning to earn a degree in engineering. He loved his family deeply, was funny, smart, kind, and compassionate with a potential for greatness. Nick cared about people in the purest way. He loved them for who they were. You could feel the warmth behind Nick's beautiful smile. Nick was our oldest child, our beautiful son. He was a brother, a friend, a cousin, a nephew, a grandson, a boyfriend, a human being. Nick was robbed of his future by the disease of addiction. No one plans on being an addict. It's a disease, not a choice. And it has reached epidemic proportions, wiping out a generation. Nick started using drugs to make him feel normal, to feel accepted, to feel worthy, because this is what the drug told him at first. What it didn't tell him was how it would devastate his family, take his education, take his jobs, take his future, take and take until it would take his life. Addiction will take hold and destroy anyone in its path, including families and loved ones of those afflicted. We all know someone who's affected by this epidemic. It isn't a character flaw. It's a disease and one that has been fueled by dirty doctors and the overprescription of opiate medications. Nick had many periods of sobriety. In the first several months, he was starting to regain his self-worth, working a very strong recovery program through AA and doing all the right things to maintain his sobriety. The spark in his eyes had returned and he seemed hopeful. He desperately wanted his life back and fought with everything he had, but in the end, he lost his battle. The day Nick died, a part of us died along with him. The pain of his death is heartbreaking and intolerable, which is why stories like Nick should not be ignored. The only way we can conquer the opiate epidemic is to share our stories, raise awareness, and fight for our children's future. In memory of our beautiful son, please help those that do not understand come to the realization that addiction is a disease and not a choice. I believe more people will reach out for help early on rather than trying to hide their disease from their family and friends. Please help end the stigma. Nick, you have now found the peace you so desperately searched for here on earth. I have no doubt you are home in heaven, ecstatic to be with your loved ones who preceded you and comforted to know how many people loved you and have been affected by your death. We will miss you every day for the rest of our lives. And he really did his death just, yeah. you know, his service was beautiful. And just so many people came out and that loved him so much. And I just love there were so many things in that that I just thought were beautiful. And one of the things from from the very beginning, was you talking about him being brave. And I just love that because I feel like oh, that's thank you. not a you word that is used often with addiction. But it does take a lot of bravery to try to fight that every day. Oh, yeah, they all do. Yeah, I know. They all do. And it's that's what's so just so 
sad and heartbreaking because they're just good people with a very serious illness that they're trying to fight that they don't want to live with. It takes so much hard work to try to do this. And him battling as he did for 13 years took a lot of bravery. A lot. Absolutely. Yeah. And a lot of love and support from his family, from you. So, I, I mean, it's just, it's heartbreaking. The whole thing is heartbreaking. It is. And every time I talk to somebody or hear of another, and, you know, now it seems like all the time, it just, you know, it saddens me, but it also just infuriates me mm-hmm. that not enough is being done, you know, and. Well, and we talked about this a little bit even before we started recording about shame and about how that is such a powerful force, really, when you're dealing with addiction, whether it's the person who has the addiction themselves feeling shame and not wanting to tell other people. Clearly, he felt shame for a while because he didn't tell you for a while. When he told me he didn't want me to tell anybody else, he right. begged me not to tell people. Right. right. I'm sure he did. Yeah. I'm sure he did. And his sister, actually, she was in middle school and I didn't know this till later, but you know, the shame that she lived with that, you know, she was trying to put on a straight face at school and she didn't want anybody to know her right. brother was an addict. And so she would make up stories and. Yeah. And it's so horrible because if Nick had cancer, mm-hmm. You would not be ashamed to tell people. No. You would not. And this really, I mean, it's it's not the same as cancer. Obviously, they're different. But in the fact that he was suffering from this disease in the same way that a cancer patient is or, you know, something else. It's like like you had said. After he had did the ecstasy the very first time. Mm-hmm. That one usage. One use. That can be enough. Mm-hmm. You know, for, for my patient, I think I said fentanyl, but it was heroin actually that she had used. It was the one time using heroin mm-hmm. that she knew that she just had to do it again. Right. And that seems to be the common denominator with all of them. Yeah. Yeah. Is that I think if you've got that kind of. I think some people have a little more of that in their DNA that it mm-hmm. will affect them more. And that's what you had talked about, too. You feel like he was just born right. with that addiction sort of waiting to happen in some ways, right? Well, I remember this doctor that he saw the last year, this addiction, and he had he's written many books on addiction and he was great with Nick he just he had compassion for Nick and he really liked Nick and I remember actually him telling Nick you know Nick it's okay this isn't your fault you came into the world this way yeah this isn't and I just there's so many people out there that want to say well they brought this on themselves they yes Nick did experiment but a lot of people do and there are other people that can do that one time and be like, eh. Right. And never do it again. Right. It's honestly, so my grandfathers were both alcoholics. And it's funny because growing up, I believe I was the only one of the grandchildren 
on the one side, on my mom's side of the family that knew that our grandfather had been an alcoholic and had, I mean, he, he actually lost his business. It, you know, it really put a huge strain on their marriage because he, you know, went outside of marriage and had an adulterous relationship. And then he went into rehab and all this. And I, we were the only grandchildren to be told that. And the reason my mom told me is because she, she never wanted us to even have that first drink because she was so scared that on both sides of the family, we had addicts Mm -hmm. and, and they were not drug addicts. They were addicted to alcohol, but she just thought, gosh, I mean, I do not want them to do it that. And, you know, and my brother and I really didn't, <laughs> you right. know, we had cousins that made different choices that I wonder, had it not been hidden in their families, would they have made those same choices? Maybe not. Right. Because really, it did put a little bit of fear into me at 14, 15 years old that this is a really scary thing and this can happen and you can lose a lot if you become addicted to, in this case, alcohol. But, you know, as I grew up, obviously you get, you hear about other drugs and things like that too. But I really admire my mom for never keeping that quiet in our family. Yeah, good for your mom. I mean, really, because this is a long time ago. This is like in the 80s and she did not hide that. And I think it, especially then, but even till now, so much of the time it is just hide it away pretend it's not happening it can't really happen in our family you know exactly yeah and I don't I you know of course the kids go through the dare program at school and everything I don't know how useful yeah there's been a lot of speculation on really how is that really helping at all but I never really sat down with my kids because we have it on both you know alcoholism and Mm -hmm. on both sides of the family and my husband had it on his family and yeah, I wish I put the fear of God in my kids when they were younger. And but I just I was like one of those parents that was a not my kid. Right. God, he's not going to be that kid just because look at him. He's just not, you know, yeah. I don't have to warn him because he just would never make that choice. Yeah. I know that after I saw the middle school kid, I had to talk with my kids. I told my kids, like, I don't want you to do that even once because that can happen to you mm-hmm. even once oh yeah because it can change your life forever right that one choice and now there'll be other people that won't but you just don't know you don't know you don't know yeah. and that's why it's yeah it's so smart at an early age to tell your kid and everybody has some sort of addiction in their family sure. and right you know, you just don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It makes me think more. I probably should do that a little more in the office, but it's hard. It's hard. <laughs> yeah. I bet. And there's probably, you probably have a lot of parents that, you know, don't want it brought up. Or... No, I'm sure. Yeah. I know I do. I know I do. Especially where we live. You know, because I think it's like your community, like, oh, that doesn't happen here. Yeah, that doesn't <laughs> yes, happen does. here. Yeah, <laughs> yes, yeah, it it's happening next door. <laughs> yeah, right, right. To that it perfect is. little family. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's it, true. There's so much denial, but the shame just makes it worse. So I, I think that that obituary did so much to just attack that, just to let people know that that's okay. And I love that that guy has that 
has the obituary hung on his refrigerator and feels like he has a relationship with Nick about it and just sees the beauty of that love. And then that is what's reminding him to keep fighting. Totally. Because it's a fight every day. Oh, it is a fight every day, every day. And he works at crazy program. Yeah. This young man. Yeah. I'm, and, and he has to keep doing it every he knows single it. day. And right. And he knows it. It's the rest of your life. Yeah. It is the rest of your life. And I think sometimes people don't know that either. No. They feel like you can go through the, the program and then be fine. And I think parents think that about their kids. And I think the kids mm-hmm. think that. I think even when they're in the midst of it all, they think, well, I can stop whenever I want. I can always just go to rehab and then I'll be done and then I'll be fine. Mm-hmm. And they don't realize that, nope, it's now going to be every day of your life will be this. Mm-hmm. Every day of their life. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not that it's not a battle that you can't, you know, successfully fight every day of your life, but it is going to be a battle every day of your life. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And I remember early on people saying, actually, one was my brother-in-law and he's like, why doesn't he just stop? Yeah. And I'm, you know, all you have to do is just stop. And I'm like, you don't understand. He can't. He can't just stop. So that's what people need to understand. Well, and that's why I really thought you would be valuable to have on the podcast today. First of all, just to talk about your grief journey, but then also to kind of give people a little bit of an insight as to just the struggle Mm -hmm. and just what we can do to kind of help each other with this whole stigma as well. Right. And, you know, maybe look at these people differently. Yeah. So you talked a little bit too about different experiences you have had really since Nick died and coming in contact, I think mainly with other parents and how you just feel like, I don't know, it's almost preordained as to some of these things. You want to give some examples of that? Well, I just, you know, I call them God things. Yeah. Kind of like Billy. It's like, why, why did this, why did this happen? And then, you know, meeting Sheila and I just feel like certain things were meant to be. And it was funny because when I met Lisa, who's now my best friend in Al-Anon, I actually asked her to be my Al-Anon sponsor. And we went out for lunch one day and we both realized this isn't going to work. This is, you know, I can't because we're going to be really good friends. (laughs) I can't, you know, and we're attached at the hip now, but there's people in my life that I really believe they're there, like they they were put there yeah. prior to me coming, you know, into the world. This was all planned. And, and I think I have another friend recently, this last year, came up to me at a, it was a reception after a funeral of some, a family friend that died. And there was probably 200 people at this reception. And she came up to me and just said, hey, I, I just want you to know that And I haven't seen her in like, I don't know, 30 years. And she just said, I want you to know that sadly, I'm part of your club. And she lost her adult son. He was in his 30s as well this last year to fentanyl. Yeah. And I'm just like, I just, you know, so now we since then have stayed in touch every day. And I just... Yeah, the people that I'm meeting, I just feel like they're put in my life for a reason. And somehow I'm supposed to 
comfort them at the very least. That's what I was thinking. Like you're there to really comfort each other. And, and I get, you, you don't know what it does for me. Right. You know, it does probably more for me than, you know, I do for them. And yeah, I mean, it's just crazy. The things that even that I see or hear or, you know, yeah, somebody else sees or hears or in nature, or it's just weird. Like, and and I just notice things more now and just been a journey. And I'm, I'm trying to um, get to a really good place and be happy and know that and, and move forward. Yeah. I can never say move on because you don't ever move on, you know, you just move forward. Yes. And so I'm very grateful that I'm able to do that and that I've had the support. And I know Nick wants that for me. Well, I know what you said earlier about introducing yourself, talking to someone that you had not met before and then saying, you know, I have three kids. I lost my oldest son to addiction. And then all of a sudden, then that person opens up. So did I. I did too. And that yeah. that's just beautiful that you can just make that subject not taboo. And then just how you've now opened that up to be like, oh, me too. Right? And right. that friend that went up to you in, in 200 people, would she have done that had you not been as vocal as you have been? Maybe not. No, yeah. She may have just sat there thinking we should both just be here and not talk about it even though I know she went through the same thing, I don't really want to admit that I went through it too. And so we're not going to talk about it. But seeing how you have been open makes her be like, yep, I'm in the same club. We're in the same. Yeah. 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 It's just beautiful. It's so good to talk about it and not be ashamed and not, you know, and talk about them. Yeah. And that's what I tell people. Talk about them. You know, talk about who they were. I mean. Yep. Nick was a great, great guy, for sure. Nick was a great, great guy. And he deserves to be talked about, all of his wonderful qualities. So thank you so much, Patty, for coming on the podcast today. I have really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks for listening. If you found this helpful and would like to support the podcast, please leave a five-star rating and comment. To help financially, you can text Andy's Mom to the number 53555 or visit the donate page on andysmom.com. Your donations are secure and tax deductible, and we are now able to accept Venmo, PayPal, and Apple Pay. Always Andy's Mom is a registered 501c3 organization and can receive donations through smile.amazon.com, Thrive in Financial, and Benevity, amongst others. Marcy loves hearing from listeners please feel free to reach out to her via email at marcy at Also, be sure to sign up for the email list to receive weekly updates as well as pictures of all of Marcy's guests and their children. Together, let's work to inspire hope one day at a time.